0: Amen. You may have a seat, and while you grab your seat, please uh, grab your copy of the Scriptures and turn on over to uh, the last chapter of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. If you're joining us uh, for the first time, I just want to, with Tim, extend a, a warm greeting to you. We're thankful that you're here. You're actually showing up on the day that we finished the book. It's been... 44 messages. This is the 44th and final message. We started this uh, over a year ago, back in February of 2021, and I would say that studying Philippians has been a joy. Has for me, I trust it's been a joy for you. In fact, uh, many say that this book is all about joy, but as we've learned, it's so much more than than just that. Paul has been laboring throughout this letter as we've studied these four chapters to show us the the richness and the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ and his gospel. And we said that while many commentators uh, want to focus in on this theme of joy and unity, we realize that there is no joy, there is no unity apart from Christ and his gospel. In fact, why don't you look on over to Philippians chapter 1, and let me just show you, as we scan chapter 1, how Paul had such a high view of Jesus, and how Philippians, when you read it now, your mind will be saturated with Jesus. There in 1 1, Paul says, Paul and Timothy, they're slaves of Christ Jesus. In 1 2, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. In 15, we have fellowship with one another because of the gospel of Jesus. In one six, God began a perfect work and he'll complete it when? Until the day of Christ Jesus. In one seven, we learn that Paul is in chains. Why is he in chains? Because of the gospel of Jesus. In one eight, Paul longed for the church, he says, with the affection of Christ Jesus. In verses 9 and 10, Paul prayed that the church's love and their knowledge and their discernment would abound and they would be sincere until the day of Christ Jesus. In verse 11, Paul also prayed that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. In 12 through 14, even though Paul was in prison for Christ, he, he wanted them to know that even his chains had given others greater confidence to more faithfully proclaim Jesus Christ. Paul understood in verse uh, 15 and 18 that some were preaching Christ with false motives and selfish ambition, but it didn't matter to Paul because at least Christ was being proclaimed. In 119, Paul understood that he would ultimately be saved through the Philippians' prayer and provision, he says there, of the spirit of Christ Jesus. In 120, Paul wanted nothing more than Christ to be magnified in his body. In 121, Paul said to live is... Christ. And to die is gain. And the only reason that death can be gained is because it gives him more of Jesus. In 22, even though Paul wanted to go home and be with the Lord, he said, I want to stick around, though, for your benefit so that you would grow and progress in your joy in Christ Jesus. In 126, Paul wanted the Philippians to boast in Christ Jesus. In 129, he wanted them to learn the art of suffering for Christ Jesus. So what's Philippians about? Certainly chapter one is all about Christ. Don't even get us started about the high Christology in chapter two. And in chapter three, Paul talking about the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so as we come to a conclusion here, in chapter four, we realize that this letter truly is all about Jesus, his glory, his gospel, So the question we'll answer today as we come to these last several verses is, how is Paul going to conclude this great, high, Christological letter? What's he going to say to close out this wonderfully rich letter about Jesus? Well, in truth, he's going to say much of the same things that he's been saying for the last four chapters. Although what he'll do is he's going to jam-pack all this theology into just four short sentences. And let me remind you that Paul, you know this, that he's very intentional. Even as he closes out a letter, especially the letter to the Philippians, for all he knew, this would be the very last correspondence he has with the church. You remember back in 125, if you look there, Paul was hopeful, he says, that he would be released and he'd be able to continue ministry, but he didn't have a definitive word from the Lord. He knew there was potential for him to be called at any time to be either crucified or have his head chopped off by Nero. And that's why Paul says there in 120, he says, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. That's because death was a looming reality for him. In 127, he says, I may come to you, but I may remain absent. And I think that's kind of a euphemism. He says there in 23, I'm still waiting to see how things go with me, which is another way to say, I don't know if I'm going to make it out of here alive. And so these final words, as Paul concludes the book of Philippians, they're not just closing remarks. These may very well be his last words to his dear friends. And when you think of it that way, it adds much more weight to the closing of his letter. In fact, Depending on how you time and think about these letters that are written, there's the prison epistles. If Philippians is the last letter that Paul writes, this is the very last letter that he writes to the churches. Paul will write 1 uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. He writes those to individuals, but the prison epistles are the last letters addressed to a local congregation. So it just adds to the weight What is he going to say? How is he going to close? What are his final words? Now, just so you're aware, the timeline of Paul's life, he is released from this. He spends three more years traveling, ministering, preaching, church planting, only to be imprisoned one more time and then ultimately to be executed by Nero. But all of that just to say that this should heighten our awareness of the importance of these words You see, what you write while you're nearing death, it adds significance. There's an extra measure of weightiness. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, It is very important for us to realize that this is no mere formal ending to a letter. It was not just a casual, expressive phrase used by the apostle. No, Paul never wrote anything in a casual manner. And nothing must be taken lightly in an epistle by this great apostle. His apparent asides are often packed with doctrine. His postscripts are full of truth and instruction. Well, let's look there now at verse 20 and see how Paul closes off this letter. Paul writes, Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever, amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Oh, Father, would you please help us? God, there is no fruit, there's no faith, there's no obedience, there's no love that will result from this if your spirit is not working and moving in our hearts to help us to see the beauties of your word. So would you please help us to treasure Christ above all else? We pray in his name. Amen. Here's our main idea for the morning. God glorifies himself by giving us all the grace we need in order to live for Christ and to love one another. Let me say it again. God glorifies himself by giving us all the grace we need in order to live for Christ and to love one another. And the outline that we're going to follow is real simple. It comes straight from the text. We'll look there in verse 20, where glory is given to God. Then greetings are given in Christ. And then finally, we'll learn that grace comes from Christ. Glory to God, greetings in Christ, and grace from Christ. Well, let's begin there in verse 20. Paul writes again, Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. And as we look there at verse 20, we notice that Paul begins with that word, now. Now, because of what I just said, back in verse 19, where he says, and my God will fulfill all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, because of that promise, you give God the glory. Respond to his riches. Respond to his generosity. Give him praise for his unbreakable promises. Speak of his excellent worth. Tell of the wealth of all of God's riches. So this now here at the beginning of verse 20, it flows from the previous verse. That's true, but we can actually look at it through a wider lens and and see that this is really helping us to understand all that Paul has just said in the previous four chapters. There's the totality of God's character and of the greatness of Christ and the sweetness of gospel that Paul is wanting us to respond to. Let me just point out too, things that I think jump off the page. First, look there at verse 19. Paul used back in verse 19, the intensely personal singular. He said, my God, my God will fulfill all your needs. But now here in verse 20, Paul, he includes the church and he uses the plural. He doesn't say my God, he says our God. You see, ascribing glory to God is not merely an individual activity, it is that. But oh, how sweet it is for the saints to gather and for us collectively to offer up our voice and ascribe glory to our infinite God. There is a wonderful corporate reality to our worship and the gravitational force of God's grace on us to pull us from all different places and all different languages and all different backgrounds. And he brings us together to offer up a unison of voices up to God to give him glory But secondly, I want you to notice that Paul says that we're to ascribe glory, not just to God, but to God our Father. You say, well, why does he phrase it that way? Well, when he speaks of God, he's speaking of Yahweh, the Lord, I am that I am, the transcendent one, the creator of all things, but he never detaches God's transcendence from his eminence, from his knowability. You see, he is the transcendent creator, but he's also the tender caregiver of your soul, which means when we worship him, we worship him with awe and fear. We revere him. He's no tame lion, and yet at the same time, he welcomes us to come like a child comes to his father. Christian, do you know that God is your father? that he delights in you, that he loves you. So we come to him knowing that he is not just God, but he's our father. And he supplies us with the greatest comfort and compassion and care. And he provides wise provision and protection and provision. Why? Because he is our father. And listen, because these things are true of our father in heaven, he deserves all the glory. Literally, Paul says, to the ages of ages, it will never stop. We will proclaim God's greatness forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Well, verse 20 reminds us that all that theology that we learned in the first four chapters, there's a natural consequence to it. Theology should always lead us to doxology. There should be a welling up within us, an uncontrollable desire to declare God's greatness. This is what true biblical understanding leads to. Our hearts, out of necessity, need to ascribe glory to God, to ascribe glory to his great name. And you know this, we don't add glory to God. It's not like he's lacking glory, but what we do is we speak back what's true of who he is. That word in the Old Testament, kavod, his glory, his weightiness, we feel it. We feel the pressure of it, and we have to respond to how great he is. You see, when you think of God as he's revealed himself, both in the world and in his word, when you consider his character and his dealings with us, how he's gracious and kind and how forgiving he's been toward you, even though you sin, it should lead us to the most exalted and exuberant kind of worship. The entire point of studying theology, of reading doctrinal statements, of reciting articles, of, of, of singing songs is we're responding to the truth of who he is. You guys know this. You didn't create yourself. You're not self-sufficient. You're sinful. But God is not like us. He's gracious, forgiving. He gives us what we don't deserve. And we consider these things. When we, when we think about God supplying, even as Tim prayed, he supplies for all of our needs, that he's rich in glory. That demands a response. Christian, have you considered that you, this morning, are forgiven of all your sins? That God has given you everything that you need for life and godliness? That he's provided you with a new destiny, that one day you will have a new body, that one day there will be no more sin or suffering or death or pain or disappointment. Do you realize that that belongs to you this morning if you realize that you're going to want to respond with the greatest adoration and praise to such a good God? Listen, church, if we know that Eternity will be full of worship. We need not wait. Brothers and sisters, this is what good theology does. It produces passionate praise to God. Always, if our worship is weak and we feel apathetic and we're unmoved, what's happening is we're aborting the appropriate consequence of contemplating the character of God. Theology, sound doctrine, its not just for us to talk about and enjoy. It's not for us to get good grades. Theology always leads to doxology. If you've ever read Paul, Augustine, Jonathan Edwards, C.S. Lewis, John Piper, you'll be familiar with some of the phrases that they use. One thing that they say is that God... Is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by their being rejoiced in. I think back to 2002 when I got married. Here in in Monterey, I remember how excited I was and how I longed to be married to my wife. And I remember when she came around the corner, she was wearing that beautiful dress. She's walking alongside her dad and she's coming down the aisle. And I'm doing what I'm doing right now. I'm crying and I'm so thankful and I'm so happy. And she comes to me, and my heart is just welling with so much joy and love. And in that moment, I'm not thinking about her sandals or her dress or her hairdo or her makeup. All those things are sweet and beautiful, but it's her. I get to marry her, my wife. The one that I long to be with for the rest of my life. You see, sometimes we treat God as so distant and we think about the particulars of, of his character and theology, but we stop there. When theology is intended for us to love and adore and to delight to be in his presence, Jonathan Edwards says, Glory, our God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but in it being rejoiced in. So listen, church, we're not only to observe, we're not just to learn about God's glory, we're called to rejoice in it, to delight in it. The Scottish theologian John Eddy writes this. He says, the ascription of praise is the language of spiritual instinct, which cannot be repressed, Oh, let the child realize his relation to the Father who feeds him and clothes him and keeps life in him, who enlightens and guides him and pardons and purifies him and strengthens and upholds him, and all this in Christ Jesus. And he cannot but in his glowing consciousness cry out now to our God and our Father be glory forever and ever. And so Paul moves here from the high Christology of the whole letter to doxology in verse 20, but now he moves from glory to greeting in verses 21 and 22. And that word, greets, it appears three times in the text, but there's a fourfold greeting that's taking place here. And you can see that as you look there. There's greetings to each individual believer. There's greetings from Paul's ministry team. There's greetings from the church at Rome. And there's greetings from the new believers who are in Caesar's household. And when you look at commentaries, you see that people just fly by this. And even as I listen to some people preach, they just fly by this. They say, well, he's just saying goodbye. Let's not make too big of a deal of it. It's just just a simple goodbye. And I would say, no, it's not. There's something so significant here. We need to slow down and dissect these farewells. You see, what Paul is doing is he's not giving a mindless, customary farewell. He's expressing his heartfelt fondness for the church. He's conveying a deep love toward his dear friends who have partnered and sacrificed and suffered in gospel ministry along with him. So he's not just saying, hey, Philippians, peace out. He's saying, no, I'm signing off with the dearest, the most tender, heartfelt, wholehearted affection. Look at it there in verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So that doxology back in 20, it propels us to praise and worship. But now this greeting here, what it does is it promotes true affection and the love that we should have for one another as the family of God. You see, because Christ has united us by his spirit, the spirit of love and truth, that same spirit creates genuine love and affection for one another. That word there, Greek, aspazomai, it's, it's nothing fancy. We, we see this over and over again. In fact, 47 times you'll encounter that word in the letter, in the letters. But our English word, it actually lightens the force of this Greek word. You see, our American greetings at times, and maybe you experience that even as you came in today, sometimes they're just impersonal, sometimes cold, a little distant, merely verbal. But the Greek meaning behind this word is a lot different. In fact, it means to unfold in one's arms and so to welcome and embrace one another. Another popular lexicon defines it as hospitable recognition. You see, what Paul is saying is, I want you, church, to joyfully and warmly welcome one another. That's what the family of God does. When we meet, when we gather, there should be a visible, familial embracing. I remember the first time that I met Mark Dever just a few years ago. I had reached out to him. I told him about this church and God doing a revitalization here and said, hey, I'd like to... Shoot you out to breakfast. So he came to Terry's Crepe Shop. And uh, as he's approaching, you know, I go, and I'm like, oh, that's Mark Dever right there. Let me, let me shake his hand. Hey, sir, how are you? And uh, you know what he did? He just slapped my hand away. And he just gave me this big bear hug. I was like, whoa, I don't even know this guy. But that's how it's been ever since. Church, that's how it needs to be with us. Paul talks about a holy kiss, holy handshake, holy hug. I think sometimes we're kind of repelled by that. Depending on your background, your culture, your family situation, some are a lot more affectionate than others. We want to be mindful and make sure that we're not crossing boundaries. But I will say this. Paul says when you greet people, especially when you greet other believers, greet them with warmth, love, embrace them, love them, Let them know that you care about them. That's how our greeting should be. Now, let's take a closer look here at the the fourfold greeting in these two verses. I think the point is to help us understand that genuine Christian greetings are just another expression of our holiness and our unity and our love, which ultimately glorifies God. What Paul says there in verse 21, to greet every saint in Christ Jesus you know this, that Paul loved to refer to Christians as saints. And unfortunately, uh, that word has been hijacked mainly by the Catholic Church and cultural contemporary um, sentiments. But in the Roman Catholic theology, that term saint, it's reserved for the super-Christian. You're, you're not a saint unless you are some sort of super-Christian. In fact, in Catholic theology, we read this, a saint is one who has exhibited un. Surpassable devotion to Christ. So how many saints do we have in the room by that definition? Unsurpassable devotion to Christ. Anybody? How about this? Are you a blood-bought sinner? Raise your hand if you're a blood-bought sinner. Then you're a saint, according to the Bible. You've been genuinely regenerated by the Holy Spirit and set apart. That's what a saint is. It doesn't mean that you're canonized. It doesn't mean that you have a profile pic on the cathedral stained glass. If you're in Christ and you're trusting in him and him alone for salvation, the Bible says you are a saint, hagios, a holy one, set apart for God in Christ. Now Paul, he uses this word over 60 times in the epistles and the majority of times that he uses that word saying he's just talking about normal, everyday Christians. And he began the letter this way And now he closes the letter by talking to every saint in the local congregation. Now look at that word in your Bible. And if you have the NIV, it says something different. Um, The text says to greet every saint. But unfortunately, some translations have kind of clumped it all in. And we read this, greet all of God's people. Like it's just one, hey, Paul sends his greetings. But that's not what we see here. Paul said greet every saint because that's what he wanted. He wanted every single individual to be recognized. So greet Sister Jessica and Brother David and Sister Michael and Sister Ashley and Brother Josh and just go all the way down the line and greet every single individual saint. What I love about this is Paul is still shepherding hearts, even at the close of his letter. Because you know that there was some unity issues, and Paul says we're not leaving anyone out. We are going to fortify even further by mentioning every single person's name. There are no favorites. Even those who preach Christ out of false motives are included. Iodia and Syntyche and the people who took sides are all included. Men and women, young and old, position in the church or not, every single saint was to be greeted and greeted with the most tender affection possible. But it's not just every saint. There's a greeting here from Paul's ministry team. Look at verse 21. It says, the brothers who are with me, they greet you. The beautiful thing as you follow Paul's ministry is that Paul is rarely ever alone. He always has people with him. He's got his squad, his ministry partners, his co-laborers that are accompanying him on ministry. And yes, you say, well, he's discipling, he's training, he's teaching, he's doing that. But even more so, he needs brothers. He needs to be encouraged and lifted up and kept accountable, and he needs friendship. You say, well, who are these brothers that are giving their greeting? Well, he's already mentioned a couple. There's Timothy that we learned about in chapter 2, 19 through 24. There's Epaphroditus who brought this letter in 2, 25 through 30, But the chances are that he has others with him who came to visit and serve him and minister to his needs while he was under house arrest. So you have guys like Tychicus and Philemon. You have Onesimus. There's a good chance that he was there with Mark and Luke and Aristarchus and maybe others. We we don't know who all is there. But I want you to picture the scene as Paul is finishing up this letter and he's sitting at a table with his fountain pen and whatever they used. And you have a bunch of brothers that are sitting around him. And as Paul is coming to a close, you hear Timothy say, hey, brother, please please tell them that I said my warmest greetings and I love them. And Luke says the same thing, and Aristarchus says the same thing. And all these brothers are trying to get him. Please, please let the church know that we're thinking about them and, and praying for them and, and love them. And so here you have around the table is some amazing theologians but they're just brothers with tender hearts who love the church and want to send their greetings to the church. What sweet solidarity. And so we see the greeting from every saint. We see the greetings from Paul's ministry team, but there is also a greeting from, it says in verse 22, all the saints, all the saints greet you. Now, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 16. I just want to show you these saints that are included If you think back to uh, Romans chapter 16, obviously Romans is a big uh, magnum opus of uh, faith, how people are saved, justification, sanctification, glorification. Chapter 16 is one of those chapters that gets skipped because we can't pronounce any of those names there. But remember this, despite Paul never being in Rome, never making the trip, but wishing and desiring to be there one day, beginning in 16.1, Paul begins to list name after name of believers that he wanted to send a special greeting. You say, well, aren't these just like some pleasantries in, in the chapter that are not really necessary? I would say no. What we have here in this last chapter of Romans is a theology of deep affection for one another. That's what we see here. It is the most extensive and intimate expression of Paul's love for other believers So right there, starting in verse 1, we see that some of them that he wrote to were co-labors with Paul. Some were fellow Jews. Others were Gentile converts. Some came to Christ before Paul did. Still others were converted after Paul. I'm sure Paul had uh, some influence on the salvation of some. Some were in prison with Paul. Some were commoners. Others had high credentials. Some would have been members of a larger Roman, Roman church. Others were a part of small house churches. We learn from Romans 16 that there's at least 29 people, and I'm sure many others, who also wanted to send their greetings to the Philippian church. You know that we are big here at Grace Church Monterey Bay on local church, but you realize that the local church is just a visible expression of the greater, more glorious, invisible, universal church. All across the globe, all throughout history, God has been calling the Hagias, the saints, out of the world, out of darkness, and into light. And one day, this local church, along with other local churches, will be gathered before the throne, giving God the glory he deserves. So Paul gives greetings from every saint, greetings from Paul's missionary team, ministry team. Greetings from all the saints in Rome. And now he gives a specific greeting. It's the greeting, he says, especially from those of Caesar's household. And what a beautiful way for Paul to end as he encourages the Philippian church. I think that he doesn't clump this greeting in with everyone else because he wants to draw special attention to these our new converts. And not just new converts, but people who no one imagined would ever come to faith in Christ. Remember, they're, they're sad that Paul is in prison, but Paul says, hey, this has worked out for the good. Because even those of the Praetorian guard are getting to hear me day and night preach the gospel. And some of those men got saved and those in their family got saved. And as they got back into Caesar's household, servants and slaves and cooks and butlers and whatever else, there are people getting saved. And I think even people in Caesar's own household were saved. And when you think about that, You think about how diabolical and wicked Nero was, and yet the gospel had penetrated into his very walls, and people were getting saved. The Roman historian, a guy by the name of Tacitus, tells us that even Claudia Acti, which was one of Nero's mistresses, became a believer. I find this humorous, because as you read the book of Acts, And we read the Gospels, we learn of all these religious leaders and the imperial powers trying to shut Jesus up and saying that he's going to be a fad and this will go away, it'll die down. Here we are in 2022 because people were preaching the Gospel and it was reaching everywhere, even the Roman Empire, the highest reaches in the realms of the Roman Empire, the Gospel was having an impact. And you know this, later on in um, AD 179, we read about the church father Tertullian who wrote this to Roman citizens. He said, we are of yesterday. And what he means by that is we haven't been around long, but listen to what he says. We are, of, we are but of yesterday. And we have filled every place among you, cities and islands and fortresses, towns, marketplaces, the very camp, tribes, companies, palaces, Senate, forum. We have left nothing to you but the temples of your gods. Powerful. He says, you're going to find Christians everywhere, but you won't find them in temples made with hands to false gods. But everywhere else you look, there's going to be Christians and then just a few hundred years later, in the 300s, Constantine' mom, she gets converted, and Christianity becomes the religion of the land. And so we have to ask the question, how in the world does a tiny, persecuted, marginalized group of Jesus followers make that kind of impact? How does the gospel spread across the world with no social media or Twitter or television No planes, trains, and automobiles. And the answer to that is, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. When that message gets proclaimed, people get saved. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are, what time you live. No matter how wicked and evil a government is or a ruler is, the gospel is the power to save. So Paul concludes this greeting section. On the highest note possible, the gospel has had a tremendous impact on the entire globe. But now we come to his final words. And they're full of grace. Look there at verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. He started with grace. He ends with grace. He says grace to you at the beginning. He says grace be with you. In all of Paul's 13 letters without exception, this is how he starts and this is how he finishes because Paul is so saturated with the grace of God and he wants the church to bask in the beauty and majesty of God's grace. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, he says, nothing greater can be desired or requested for any of us than that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ should be present with us and controlling our spirits. And so as we come to a close of the sermon and this letter, I just want to point out three beautiful realities about God's grace. The sweetness of his grace, the sovereign who provides the grace and this grace that is in our spirit. First of all, the sweetness of grace. Church, what is more glorious than the grace of God? What's more glorious? God's grace is the most valuable, the most beneficial blessing. There's nothing more important in all the world then God's grace, if you have kids and one day they grow up to be scholars and they earn PhDs, they make the MBA or the NFL or whatever else, they become inventors, they win the Nobel Peace Prize, fantastic. But if they don't have an understanding of God's grace, just as Tim said, they are to be pitied. There is nothing more important than for your parents, your kids, your family members, your neighbors to understand than the rich blessing of God's grace. And Paul wants the Philippians to know that this grace is theirs. It belongs to them. He's not actually asking for God to give them grace. He's not praying that God give them grace. What he's saying is, I want you to know that this grace is already yours It belongs to you. It's a reality. God has promised it. You have it. So let me just ask you, when's the last time you just sat and contemplated or journaled or or talked to someone about how gracious God has been to you? You realize that the sum and substance, substance of your entire Christian life from very beginning, presently right now, and end is all owing to God's grace. You would not be here if it were not for God's grace. There is a reality. That reality is called hell. You would be there right now if it were not for God's grace. Everything, justification, sanctification, glorification, all of it rests upon his unmerited favor gifted to us by Jesus Christ. Have you tasted that? Have you seen it? Have you responded to it? this grace that's gifted to you apart from your own righteousness, this grace that you cannot earn, this grace that does not get passed down from mom and dad. You cannot inherit this grace, the kind of grace that says kindness, even when you forsake the Lord and fall into sin and falter, the kind of grace that provides the the disposition from a father that helps you in your weakness, the kind of grace that continually beckons you back to the table of God, the kind of grace that you don't have to pray for because it's already yours. Have you tasted it? Have you seen it? Have you responded to it? There is a sweetness to God's grace, but what makes it even sweeter is that it comes from the sovereign Lord Jesus himself. You see, the Philippians, they were familiar with a sovereign ruler, They know exactly what it means to be under the rule and dictatorship of Nero. There were no branches of government. There's no checks and balances to check the emperor. There's no democracy. There's no political partisanship. There's no Supreme Court. The emperor makes the decisions, and what he says goes. You're not going to overturn what Nero says. He's going to give you the thumbs up or the thumbs down, and that's it. But listen... Caesar Augustus and all the Caesars and all the czars and all the kings and all the rulers and all the princes and princesses, all of them are going to bow down to the sovereign Lord Jesus. Caesar called himself Lord. He viewed himself as Lord, but there's only one, Jesus Christ, the one who rules over all, who has absolute power and dominion, not because he oversees a city or a country but because the cosmos belonged to him. If you've been on social media, Twitter, you've seen NASA put out these pictures of these far off galaxies, and the Bible tells us that our sovereign Lord did this. And they were created. Paul says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to this sovereign Lord. So every atheist, every agnostic, every Buddhist, every Hindu, Every Jew, every JW, every Muslim, Mormon, Catholic, secular humanist, every universalist, every spiritual person, carnal person, religious person, all persons without exception will bow down to the sovereign king of the universe. And it is this sovereign king that gives us so much grace. And you say, why? How? It's his grace. Because he loves you. In your weakness, he helps you. In your unloveliness, he loves you. In spite of your unworthiness, he welcomes you. When you're impatient with your wife, with your kids, he's patient toward you. When you're proud and arrogant and obstinate and stiff-necked, he deals with you with the most tender Gentleness, and kindness. Oh, the matchless grace that's far-reaching, more expansive than the galaxies, is given to you, Christian. Now, in addition to that, Paul says, this grace be with your spirit. And all he's doing is he's making a difference between the physical and the spiritual. We're not just physical. We're not just temporal. We're not just carnal. When you were created, you were created to be forever. And what Paul is saying is, I want this grace to permeate and to press down to the deepest part of your being, that you would welcome this grace and delight in this grace and proclaim this grace, and it would be for God's glory. That's it. We've come to the end. I trust that Philippians has been a tremendous blessing for you. Our life, our ministry, our very existence is all about Christ. Yes, Philippians is about joy, and about unity, but really it's all about Jesus and the gospel. And what a privilege that you and I have, Grace Church Monterey Bay, to represent our king, our sovereign king, our gracious king. We have the only message that saves. We have the only message that can change someone from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So would you please join us in proclaiming this truth, not just proclaiming it, but cherishing it, loving it, living it. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your amazing grace, grace, God, that flowed to us from the death of your own son, your one son, your only son, your beloved son. It's his blood, that paid for our sins. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you always live to make intercession for us, even now as we pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the grace that forgives us and strengthens us and grows us in holiness. We thank you for the grace that draws us to the foot of your throne and away from the false treasures of this world. We thank you for the grace that helps us to fear your name and regard your authority the authority that comes from your word and the grace to obey with submissive and joyful hearts. Father, we thank you for the grace that uncovers every single lie of the world and of sin and Satan and brings us to that path, that narrow road. Oh Lord, we thank you that it's your grace that keeps us, your grace that adopts us, your grace that promises an imperishable inheritance. Lord Jesus, You are our mediator, our sustainer, our provider. All that we have, all that we are, is owing to your wonderful, marvelous, and matchless grace. And we love you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.